Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Order up, 24. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fit the Mission. It's lunchtime at La Cucina, a nonprofit food hall in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. On a recent sunny afternoon, the staff at Estrellita Snacks, a Salvadoran food business, are serving up pupusas. Customers can order the pillowy, savory flatbread dish in a variety of flavors. Ah, queso, cheese, cheese and, and spinach. The crowd is made up of co-workers and business attire, students and other residents of the neighborhood. But starting Friday, September 1st, Estrellita Snacks and other food kiosks at La Cocina will shut down. The 7,000-square-foot building will transition into a commercial kitchen with just a coffee bar and one featured food vendor. It's a far departure from how La Cocina was envisioned when it opened just over two years ago. Finally, a special kitchen here in California giving talented chefs a taste for business and a shot at running their own restaurants. Its launch garnered national attention from media outlets like NBC Nightly News because the La Casino Marketplace had an ambitious mission to empower immigrant women and other entrepreneurs of color to start their own food businesses and to serve affordable and tasty dishes to the Tenderloin community. La Casina has cited familiar reasons for its upcoming closure, San Francisco's slow downtown recovery and remote work. The challenges of the neighborhood, drug use and dealing, homelessness, haven't helped either. The closure is disappointing a lot of loyal customers, including San Francisco native and student Conrad M. I get the community meal, the $5 community meal, and then I usually get like two because it's pretty cheap. It's only $5. And I'm a student, so it works out because I'm pretty broke, you know? It's also disappointing people who work nearby and love supporting businesses in the Tenderloin. Well, I, I work here, so, I you, know, too. I work we, here we, too. you know, we work here and it's kind of, you know, it's just another neighborhood with its challenges. We may have more challenges than other neighborhoods, but, you know, it's a part of San Francisco. Today on Fifth Emission, what does the end of a beloved mission-driven food hall in the Tenderloin signal? Chronicle food reporter Mario Cortez and opinion columnist Alejo help break it down. What's to blame, the pandemic or the city's management of issues in the neighborhood? And what does all this mean for small business owners in the city, especially immigrants and women who are looking to make it in San Francisco? Here's my conversation with Mario Cortez and Solejo. Soleil, I'd love to start with you. As the former restaurant critic for The Chronicle, you covered La Cocina when it opened in 2021, and its opening garnered a ton of attention, even from national media. Why was it such a big deal? I think La Cocina is really beloved in general because so many nationally renowned businesses sprang from their incubator program. For example, Reams in the Mission, Nyambai, which was recognized by so many national publications. It was a Cambodian restaurant in Fruitvale. There are vendors that have gone on to supply tamales and pupusas to local stores and Whole Foods. Like They have a pretty high profile. And the Mission just 
sounds crunchy and nice, right? They enable low-income women of color, many immigrant women, to open their own food businesses, to to go legit, where many of them were selling tamales out of coolers to bars late at night. You know, they were doing that sort of gray market vending that people love, but is really hard to make a life off of. And what specific challenge do you think the mission of La Cucina was trying to address with this particular model? Well, opening a restaurant and going legit with a food business is always hard, no matter who you are, unless you're a restaurant group, then that's easy. But (laughs) if you are an immigrant person, especially a woman, it's really unlikely that you are going to have that kind of generational wealth or faith from banks in order to get the loans to open a business. These are occupations that kind of happen because their day jobs don't pay enough. And we know that broadly speaking, women of color are the least paid people in any industry. So many of these people, their stories are that they are trying to support their families and they decided to pick up some extra income on the side, selling tamales and noodles or whatever. And it just, you know, it feels great to bridge that gap. And La Cocina gave them access to business plans and training and how to do safe serving in restaurants, that sort of thing, which, you know, you don't usually get a chance to learn unless you are kind of within certain circles in the food world. This business model helped immigrants and women of color start their food businesses. And so the options inside for patrons were all these culturally diverse foods. Tell me about the food itself. What was it like to eat there? I grew up in a place with malls, lots of malls, and food courts were a huge part of my childhood. And, you know, they were, like, nominally diverse. You went to Panda Express. You went to, like, uh, the the pizza slice place. And <laughs> La Cocina gave me a little bit of that, but in a much more what I want as an adult way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Algerian food and, oh, man, Creole tacos and just plenty of Latin American cuisines to choose from. It was pretty cool. It sounds so pat when I say it, but I like a United Nations of food businesses. Mm-hmm. And you really could just try a whole bunch of new things to right. you. And everything was so good. It was so good. Yeah. There was a spaghetti mm-hmm. sandwich there that I really liked. A from spaghetti Taraga. sandwich. I didn't I missed that. Yeah. It's so trashy, but it was so good. Yeah. <laughs> So, Mario, the La Cucina that many people have come to love and enjoy, that's all going to look pretty different come Friday, September 1st. Tell us what exactly is happening, and is it fair to call it a closure? So at the moment, you can walk in and just get lunch from whichever one of the vendors at the hall. But on uh, September 1st, when this transition begins, um, the vendors will be using that space to prepare for their uh, farmer's market booths, for their food truck appearances, for any other pop-ups for you know, catering gigs. There will be one vendor, which is a uh, rotating vendor at the uh, coffee kiosk at the entrance. So La Cucina has 44 businesses at its facility on Folsom Street in the Mission, which is its original commissary kitchen space. And um, the La Cucina staff wants to bring in some of those entrepreneurs into this space just to um, alleviate some of the uh, congestion over there, just to make it easier for them. So this news of these changes came, as I understand, quite a surprise to the vendors of the food kiosks that you spoke to. They got this abrupt update at the end of July, and you spoke to some of them. How has 
being a part of La Cocina really helped their businesses? And how are they feeling about all these changes now? Well, the food hall offered them like a really strong like source of revenue going beyond just being like a lifeline for their business. It also gave them a chance to like develop regulars to really have people like get to know them, really like put a face and a story to like the the business name at the hall. Some of the vendors mentioned that uh, they got to like interact with other women from like sim- very similar backgrounds who had to like you know deal with pretty much the same things in order to like start a business. I spoke with Tiffany Carter from Booch Cali, and um, you know she's from the Bayview. She started out selling gumbo out of like her car, and uh, through La Casina she was able to formalize those business skills. Whatever this next chapter is going to look like, I feel like I'm in a in a better position. Like I've had the opportunity to, to open up every day, to have staff, to prep, to have customers, and to really, really grow my brand. I think one of the greatest things that La Cocina gave me is space, number one, and then just being in the same room as other women. You're just in the same kitchen and you watching and you learning. So just being in that shared space is probably the most valuable thing for me that I learned from La Cocina. Jose Salazar works with his mom, who's the owner of Mi Morena, and they offer uh, Mexican food. So Jose, you know, when I spoke with him, seemed pretty just disappointed in this turn of events. All the entrepreneurs had in mind was we were going to ride out at least the, the, until the lease was over. That was what we were told. It kind of shocked everybody. Like, they weren't expecting it. What La Cocina is trying to do is trying to make this thing like seem like it's a transition. But, like, right. no, in the reality of it, the marketplace is closing. How did the leadership of La Cocina make the hard decision to close the food hall? And why are some of the vendors still looking to stay in the Tenderloin despite all of the challenges in the neighborhood? Mario Cortez and Solejo will share after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Solejo, you've written quite a bit about how the pandemic has affected restaurant businesses as well as food labor. What do you think of La Cucina's closure, especially after listening to some of the reactions of the vendors? It's hard. It's hard that this organization that really tries to do the right thing and has social justice sort of written into its DNA, it's hard to see it try to make business happen in a time when it's so hard. You know, Mario mentioned that these businesses are pivoting to catering, for instance, but who are they catering to? Who's in the offices? Like, what's going to happen? Having to tie a social justice mission to business and to the work of making money at this moment is just, it's tough. I really feel for them. And we all wanted them to succeed, I think. The whole city did. But there are these macro challenges that they just couldn't overcome. And that's just, It is something that so many other restaurants have experienced. 
And it sounds like, Soleil, maybe some of the vendors are frustrated. The news seemed abrupt. They didn't know it was going to be this way. But maybe it's also hard for them to understand who to channel those frustrations toward. Yeah. I mean, an organization, too, they were probably waiting at the last minute to get whatever grants or whatever, you know, loans from the city to make it work. And they probably fell through. You know, things like that fell through. Nonprofits, especially ones that do food programming, usually can't rely on consistent funding year to year. That abruptness feels, it's sad, but it also makes sense to me. Well, Mario, you spoke to the executive director of La Cucina, Leticia Landa, to try to get some clarity on how they made this decision. What reasons did she give you for making these changes? So basically, when they planned for the food hall, they expected a certain amount of sales from each kiosk vendor, and they just simply didn't pan out. In the business plan, I think we had sort of a a thought that it would be about 40000 per business per month. And it's actually been kind of like seven to 12000 per month in sales. I don't think we can keep waiting for the sales volume that we were thinking we were going to get before the pandemic happened, before all of these different things happened. It just doesn't make sense to keep waiting. And when this news first broke, Mario, a lot of people were like, another failed thing in the tenderloin. What did Leticia have to say about that? Were homelessness, the drug crisis in the neighborhood, did that factor into their decision making? So La Cucina has spent 667000 on private security services for the hall since it opened. And it also spent $65,000 in security equipment. You know, especially like in 2021, we were also paying into Urban Alchemy's support of security in the area. I think that the safety situation in the Tenderloin is a bigger picture question. That is a really important thing for the city and for a lot of different, you know, partner organizations that that's their focus to continue to work on. But that's not really what La Cocina does. I think a lot of people think we're just closing and walking away. And that's not the case. The point is that we're trying to remain and we're trying to continue to be a positive part of the neighborhood as, as best we can. As part of my reporting, I met Terrell McClendon. He's a security guard at La Cocina. San Francisco native. He was just telling me that that stretch of like Golden Gate was just like overrun with like drug activity and just having people walk in, you know, just like just the, the natural activity that the uh, food hall generated, you know, just kind of kept people doing drugs and, you know, selling drugs away since it's by having people around. People are, are expressing their disdain and, and, and being upset about the fact that it's closing because this was actually a bright spot. This, this area before this place opened was it was overrun with, with dealers and, and addicts and it, 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 you couldn't even walk down the street. So once this place opened, it's been a constant battle to kind of control the outside traffic so that we can get traffic in here. Well, Soleil, this is sort of a theme that we kept hearing about when we heard about the news of La Cucina closing. And of course, we all know the Tenderloin is this neighborhood that's well known for many challenges from homelessness to the drug crisis. But those kinds of big, hard to solve problems in the city could eclipse news like this, but why is it also important when a food place like this closes? What does that signal? I know you recently wrote about changes that San Francisco was making to the farmer's market in the neighborhood, for example. It's hard to get 
good food in the Tenderloin. Not to say that there's no good restaurants. Of course, there are many good restaurants there. But affordable, nutritious food is really hard to come by. There's no proper grocery stores there. Mostly it's liquor stores that have to be kind of coaxed into carrying fresh produce. And there are programs that are causing incentives for that to happen, but it's still an uphill battle. What was great about La Cocina was that they had that sort of brought into their model from day one. You could get a $5 meal from any of the vendors that was really good. And it was the same food that anyone else got, just, you know, maybe more beans and more rice on the plate. But, you know, that was great. It was something that was hopeful and good and supplied food to the many families and children that also live in the neighborhood. It meant a lot. And any blow to food security and food access in that neighborhood means so much. It just is so devastating. But also just in addition to food security, opening small businesses in the Tenderloin is also really important, especially for people who live there. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the few neighborhoods that I'm seeing actually lots of new restaurants open. There's a lot of older business owners uh, in the area, especially in the sort of little Saigon area that are flipping businesses. And uh, yeah, there's some really interesting turnover as well. And having, I don't know, just having life there is is so important. And it's historically, though, I also want to point out that social services are concentrated in that neighborhood. That's why it has the reputation that it does, because that's where people who are the most vulnerable in the city have to go to be taken care of. And that conflict has always, I mean, for decades, been a part of the conversation in San Francisco. Well, Mario, let's talk about next steps now. La Cocina is going to transition the food hall into an incubator kitchen program, like you mentioned. And eventually, the lease runs out in 2025. San Francisco owns that property. And their plans is to build it into affordable housing. What did business owners share with you about their next steps? What are they going to do now? Do they even want to stay in the Tenderloin? Business owners at the food hall are looking for uh, new venues, whether it's a brick and mortar or just a permanent place to park a food truck. Jose Salazar at Mimorena said that, you know, because his family has been in the Tenderloin for so long, they want to like remain in the, in the Tenderloin. It was last minute. It doesn't really give you time enough to like really scout and find a place for you that's perfect for you. We want to stay in the Tenderloin. We're from the Tenderloin. We want to stay here locally. I mean, because there's so much that I want to do here in the Tenderloin, and there's so much potential for it. And then Tiffany Carter of Booch Cali also mentioned that she wants to stay in downtown San Francisco since she's a really strong believer that there's potential for small businesses in downtown, and she's looked at properties in the Tenderloin. She's looked at properties in the Embarcadero. Despite all the crazy stories about downtown San Francisco, like I said before, I'm a San Francisco native, born and raised. I don't have no plans of leaving San Francisco. It's still a very much beautiful, beautiful city. So I hope to stay somewhere downtown. So many people love this space. Just the news of it closing, people is coming in and they're, they're sad. Like you can see it in their eyes, like the look of despair, of defeat. People need space. Space is important, a space where you feel welcome, you know, as opposed to the Twitter building. You know, in speaking with some of these vendors, like the neighbors and you know, just people who are coming in, you know, whether they're like students at UC Hastings or construction workers, they're all very appreciative. They have like formed bonds with each other. It's like there really is a community at the hall and they really have like embedded themselves in like that neighborhood. 
Soleil, San Francisco offered La Cocina a below-market rent rate for the space, as well as other funding support, and even still, it's closing. Former Chronicle columnist Heather Knight first reported the closure and wrote that, quote, if a business that was widely celebrated can't survive in today's San Francisco, what can? What do you think of that, Soleil? What's needed to keep such a beloved business model alive these days? I mean, there is a lot of truth to the contention that San Francisco makes it really hard to open businesses if you don't have lawyers, if you don't have like a huge financial backing. I mean, that's why La Cocina exists, to help facilitate this process that's so arcane and difficult, especially for food. And I think you talk to any restaurant owner in this town or cafe owner in this town, and they will tell you that it is just a nightmare. But they do it because they want to be here and they love it for businesses that are really important, right? Like Heather said, it's a really important celebrated business. Like the city should pony up. They should make their lives easier. It should do everything it can to ensure that this thing lives. And, you know, it was more than just a business. It was a public amenity that brought so much positivity to a neighborhood that the city is trying so hard to do nice things for, but they didn't demonstrate that sentiment where it counted. They didn't treat it like something to be respected. This reminds me about the conflict over BART, to be honest, and public transit, where this thing, this entity contributes so much to public life and urban life, and yet it has to make money in order to survive. That's ridiculous. And it puts the onus back on who to keep it to survive? Us citizens. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all staying at home eating instant noodles (laughs) in our pajamas. Let us do that and let us have La Cocina. Well, Soleil, Mario, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mario Cortez is a food reporter at The Chronicle. Find his La Cucina reporting online at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. Thanks to Mario and Chronicle columnist Soleil Ho for being my guests. This episode was produced with Gary Baca, who also edited the episode. Thanks to Keith Manconi for the production help and to you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>